0: To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the technology advancements that I'm particularly excited about is using cameras to automate the collection of what we kind of call target variables. So, you know, when you're controlling a system, you have input variables like your electrical conductivity, pH, temperature, humidity, stuff like that. And you can automate them to get those variables in line with a growth recipe. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast. Weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ag tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran.
0: Vertical Farming Podcast, Season 2. Welcome back. If this is your first time listening, I'm positive you're in the right place. It's the show where we interview fascinating CEOs and founders of the leading vertical farming companies from around the world. I'm your host, Harry Duran. In case you missed last week's show, we had a great conversation with Melvin Medina. He's the Agricultural Officer at FAO, Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations. I learned a lot about FAO that I didn't know and Melvin's journey through various countries from growing up in El Salvador, my home country as well, to stints in Jamaica, uh, all the way to his current home in Rome, with a lot of interesting stops along the way. I really, really enjoyed that conversation. Make sure you check that out. This week, we have two guests on the show, Alexander Olison and Graham Smith, co-founders of Babylon Microfarms. Alexander and Graham met at the University of Virginia where they first designed a low-cost microfarm to provide nutritious produce for food-insecure refugees in the Middle East. They were initially inspired by the desire to bring benefits of sustainable hydroponic farming to those who need it the most. In this episode, Alexander and Graham discuss their initial educational pursuits and what led them to AgTech. We find out where the inspiration came to start Babylon and challenges and obstacles they faced along the way. We learn how Alexander and Graham decided where to focus their resources when it came to building up their company, how they've grown their team, and why they've chosen to set up shop in Virginia. We learn about the impact of COVID and how important networking is in AgTech. We also get a peek into why Graham has a passion for making products that make people happy. And Alexander explains why vertical farming is so important in today's society. This episode is brought to you by Series Greenhouse Solutions. If you're looking for a greenhouse solution that will suit your specific climate and growing goals, then talk to an expert from Series Greenhouse Solutions. Ceres combines passive solar concepts, innovative climate control technologies, and customized grow systems to ensure that their growers are yielding the highest quality product year-round for the lowest operational cost. Visit Ceres Greenhouse Solutions, that's C-E-R-E-S GreenhouseSolutions.com to learn more. I really enjoyed the dynamic between these two co-founders and their passion for vertical farming is definitely evident in this episode. This week, we have a new review from Anand Parade. I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. Thanks, Anand. He says, this podcast is super educational, informative, and inspiring. It is absolutely amazing to hear the stories of wonderful people. Loved it. Thank you so much. And remember, if you'd like your review read out, be sure to get that sent in to us at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. Don't forget to sign up for our weekly newsletter at verticalfarmingweekly.com, where you'll be notified when new episodes go live and get a weekly recap of all things vertical farming. Let's get into this conversation with the co-founders of Babylon Micro Farms. So Alexander Olison and Graham Smith, co-founders of Babylon, thank you for joining me on the Vertical Farming Podcast.
2: Thank you, Harry. Excited to be here.
0: Yeah, thanks for having us. So I'm interested in always origin stories and uh, you guys have a really interesting one given how how long you've known each other. So I'm wondering if we can start by deciding who might have the best version of how you guys met. Probably
1: Alexander, you can take that.
2: Yeah, so I've been introduced to uh, hydroponics specifically through an open source project at UVA and then Graham and I teamed up an organization called HackSivo where we were both kind of exploring different entrepreneurial projects and i think had some some previous projects and um yeah i was a sort of took this idea and then teamed up with graham and we started conceptualizing what it would be like to kind of feed a person a family and, and a, sustain a business and building farms of that scale which um you know four or five years ago is a pretty novel line of thinking in an industry that is typically geared towards massive scale production of a handful of skews so that was kind of the initial insight and we were like, okay, let's let's put them in people's houses. You know, how nice would that be? We were blissfully naive at the time and uh, started ripping down the fence outside to build our first prototypes. And it was very, very scrappy. And then we applied for a grant and we won the grant and then we applied for another one. And it just kind of snowballed. I think you, at the first grant it was like six and a half thousand dollars, which is a, you know, 20 something year old in college was a lot of money. And it helped us build first like five prototypes and um, it just kind of went from there. And, um, yeah that was kind of the beginning, and we've
0: been doing it ever since. Graham, do you remember the first time you met Alexander?
1: Yeah, I think we were at you know at this group that Alexander mentioned called Haxebo. I think we were both at a hack weekend or something like that. so everyone came with ideas. Mine was about like flight simulators or something, and his sounded a lot better. so I abandoned <laughs> my idea. He was basically you know talking about all the benefits of hydroponics and just at the time was kind of focused on accessibility because the, the benefits are very clear, yeah. but there's kind of a lot of reasons that it hasn't permeated our culture and it is not as widespread as hopefully one day it will be. And so, you know, we kind of set out together to try to address that.
0: Graham, when you initially attended University of Virginia, what, was, what were you intending to major in and what were your thoughts about what, what type of job you've had when you got out? So I studied
1: biomedical engineering, Is a bit of software engineering, a bit of electrical, a bit of mechanical. So they prepare you a little bit in everything and not well for any particular job. At the time, I was working on a couple IoT medical devices. Always liked startups because I had an internship with the Navy a while ago. And that's, I would say, the polar opposite, where you sit in a room for days working on a small task. You know, that's kind of beside the point, but was working on a couple of medical devices. And Alexander came by and and had this idea for a while as kind of juggling both. And again, Mm -hmm. it just kind of started snowballing to the point where at one point we had the decision, do we make this a a full-time job? And kind of took that leap of faith.
0: Alexander, I I believe you studied social entrepreneurship. Is that correct? Yeah. I'm I'm wondering where that uh, drive came from.
2: I wouldn't say I had any drive when I was studying per se, but I certainly had a drive to do things outside of class, things that I was interested in. I think that was a, maybe an underlying problem that lends itself quite well to doing startups.
0: When did the, the world of, for lack of a better phrase, indoor ag tech, controlled environment, agriculture, like when did that start to appear on, on your respective radars?
2: Yeah, I think, yeah, I'm sure that there are some industry veterans who would disagree with what I'm about to say, but I'd say in the last five years, the space has gone through like a complete transformation. I think we were, we caught that wave. And so while there was a lot of technology, and a lot of promise back then, I don't think it was as widely known about or really like there wasn't an industry around it per se in the way that there is today. And so I think we were fortunate to our, you know, do the research back then, just based on the, value of hydroponics itself rather than you any real understanding of the amount of money and investment that was going to come into space. And so I think the two things aligned. like we were just genuinely interested and motivated by the sustainability benefits of hydroponics and accessibility. And then simultaneously we just kept seeing like big funding round new company and like that whole kind of commercial wave coming. And so that, that doesn't answer your question, but I think the two things just coalesced and we, were in the crosshairs and it just happened where we were riding this wave and suddenly building a company in the midst of all this activity which kind of has i think has always made our lives a little bit easier because investors are interested in this space and so that helped us
0: uh graham coming from the the technical side was there something about you know indoor ag tech or trying to tackle a, a problem of this scale that attracted you from uh A challenge perspective or or something that you felt it was new technology that you wanted to dig in deeper on?
1: Yeah, I mean I've always been really motivated by building products I feel actually make people happier and actually improve our lives rather than kind of, you know, a new cell phone, stuff like that. So in my mind over the years, that kind of narrowed to things like education, health, and within health, I would say kind of a subset is food. So that, that was what got me originally into medical devices. But I, I think food has always motivated me. I, th- I think we treat it, you know, I don't think we respect food the way that it should be. I think we treat it as almost a commodity or, you know, material thing that comes in packaging by the thousands on the shelf rather than something that was grown by a real human and is an input into how healthy we are, how happy we are, etc., So when it sounded like there was a potential technology solution that could make better food more accessible, I think that really drove me. And the, you know, the technology back then, we kind of thought of it pretty differently. But the idea that it involved, you know, software automation, hardware, you know, it really is a a complex product. And I think that that challenge sounded super exciting. And going back to kind of describe what we what we learned in school, I think it builds on a lot of different things that together make a, you know, hopefully really useful end solution.
0: Were you always drawn to technology when you were younger?
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, when I was a little kid, I was like taking stuff apart. My Xbox broke when I was 12 or something and I figured out how to fix it and ended up actually, that was kind of technically my first job was fixing Xboxes and PS3s and stuff. I'd buy them by the current load and turn them around and I would say it, it only got to be a, a legitimate thing once I started working on some IOT medical devices for startups. I guess one was for an outside startup, one was for myself. But you know, health stuff has a lot of barriers to entry. In food, you can get started a little quicker. So even though it's kind of a complex product, it's a bit easier to get, get
0: rolling. Do you remember the first computer you ever bought?
1: First computer I bought? No, I don't I mean, I've, I've built a couple, but I feel
2: like at our age we had computers around us from like a yeah, very young natives,
0: age yeah. Na- Digital natives, I think is the yeah. term. I did, Wait,
1: I did find a box of old broken iPods that at one point, I guess I planned <laughs> to fix in my parents' house, and they were like, "Can you please take all your broken stuff?"
0: Well, some of that old tech is valuable now, I think yeah. people are holding on to their Blackberries and their razor flip phones and stuff. so
2: yeah <laughs> we get to. We threw out our old farm prototypes the other day. We decided they were not quite collector's items yet. That's pretty it's, sad, though. Yes.
0: Alexander, when you start to you know think about who would make sense to partner with, you know, when, when you're, you have an idea, and it seems like the first project you worked on was Hack Seattle Together. Is, is that correct? No,
2: it, it's a funny. I wish I could say that it was like a, a light bulb moment mm-hmm. or anything, but I do think in our case like aside from just like getting on really well and there's definitely like a yin-yang situation where our just skill sets and work ethics complement each other I think it's very much a gradual process and I feel like Graham, you know we was always like putting in the hours just like didn't and you know we as a, a student level we were like trying to pull in all sorts of random people to help and like Graham and I are just kind of the guys pushing it forward and it just happened so I yeah I wish I could say it I was like, "Ah, that mm-hmm. was the moment, but it just kind of materialized, and you know I think there are so many factors in these decisions and and the same with the success of the company or kind of pending success is you know lots of things have to go right for it to succeed, and fortunately, you know they just seem to always line up for us. or have done so far at least.
0: What was your biggest takeaway because it looks like hexiville, you were working on that for about about a year. is that correct
2: yeah I, I think the we spent about two years trying to figure out what it meant to make hydromonics accessible. Like, is micro farming feasible? Is like this appliance category a real thing? And I think during that time there was a lot of trial and error, and also trying to fit it around like class and like real world problems. Also deciding whether you want to do this in a full time job. You know, I think those are all tinkering time, which I kind of discredit. I think those are just formative years, which. I'm much more focused on the future now. We've got a good direction. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, so we spent a couple of years just figuring stuff out, did some accelerators, you know, learned a lot. A lot of the fundamentals, you know, we were building farms, growing stuff, doing what we needed to do to understand where, what the direction was that we wanted to take this. And unfortunately, we found that.
0: When did the idea for Babylon come up? You know, and I imagine it was some somewhere during the time you were wrapping up. Taxiville, but I'm curious just about that that origin right there.
2: I think the the theme, the underlying theme has always been the same. Yeah, it's accessibility at this core, and it's also the feasibility of, of this kind of micro farming concept, which is sort of anywhere from a home to small scale production, which is not, it's kind of the opposite of the industry standard today. And so that stays the same, but like what's, that's still a very like high level. You know, now we're in the weeds of trying to commercialize stuff, it's got much more specific. And I would say through this process, we kept trying to build hardware and we realized that hardware is not the solution. It's actually around what we call remote management. So we have a a pretty sophisticated software suite, which underpins what we do. And that is transferable platform to basically run farms, smaller scale farms through the cloud and provide them with a high level of support. And that itself, we realized that now years ago, but I think that is what has taken us nearly five years to this day to build and deploy. And that platform really addresses a lot of the user experience and the, the barriers to entry for smaller scale farming. And we really think it is the potential to kind of em- create this category and, and allow us to emerge as the kind of software that can power all these different small scale farms.
0: Graham, in that first year, I imagine there were probably a sets of technical challenges that you may not have even been able to predict and because there's just new experiences, you know, technology you haven't worked with or understanding what you would need to, to do in order to scale at the level that you, you were looking to scale. So I'm I'm wondering if you can talk through, you know, take, just take us back to that first year and, and talk through like what some of the the things you were, you were thinking about as you were ramping up.
1: Yeah. I mean, as far as first challenges, I, I think the first was just getting a, grasp on what makes plants grow and be happy So, of course that kind of starts with textbooks and researching online and stuff like that but at some point you gotta get out the saw you know make a hydroponic table and see how they do so the first couple didn't have any automation or anything it was just kind of us throwing some some seeds in seeing if we could get a good feel for irrigation air stones all kind of inputs of growing plants. And, you know, and over that year we got a good understanding of that and how they respond to the different ways you can design a system. And we also got really familiar with the inaccessibilities of running a hydroponic system. Like we were there every day on our hands and knees, pipetting nutrients in and hoping we were following the directions and stuff like that. So we started automating certain things Like lighting schedule, irrigation schedule, stuff like that, which I had some experience with, which was helpful, but not like a whole lot. And then we started going from kind of those static recipes where we would just have a baseline schedule for irrigation and lighting and stuff like that, to having those kind of depend on other inputs like sensors. So I'd say just sensors in general are a challenge for anyone that you see them on a website and it looks like a nice plug and play thing. But in general, when you're trying to actually incorporate them, there are headaches. So I'd say that was, that was kind of the first two years, getting a good feel for plants that I think we carry through to this day. That, that really informs any design we do. Normally we can strike off a lot of feature options and stuff like that, just because we know it, it won't work. Um, It won't keep plants happy and healthy. And then really just the beginnings of, learning how to automate these farms. And we like, we didn't have an app or anything at that point. It was all, you know, locally hosted and controlled. Kind of later on, we moved that kind of stuff to the cloud and gave the, the user a nice interface, stuff like that.
2: Yeah, I, th- I think pretty early
1: on, we
2: saw that for these smaller scale farms to succeed, it requires like a very different set of problems to be solved than that of a large scale commercial farm. So like... It, to some extent, yes, we have the same semi-automation that any commercial grow up has now. So we're not using a pipette or any of the stuff we did at the beginning. But like it's combining that with the back end infrastructure that gives to support with supplies and provide customer support to allow us to like pull out farms and run them through the like really run a whole farm through the cloud and like a stitch fix or a meal prep box, provide them with the right supplies. Like that is a whole pretty unique software stack. to address problems with these smaller scale farms that you just really it just has no relevance to a big farm i think that we only saw once we started building and deploying these farms we're like oh wow this this is pretty uh there's no small undertaking
0: how did you decide where in the ecosystem you wanted to play because obviously with you know vertical farming you could be everything from you know, the plenties of the world to like the freight farms and, and go the container route to the people who are, gro- you know, the grow pods who are building, you know, appliances for, for in-home. And so there's a whole range of, of spaces where you could play and, and and technical challenges with each one of those. So I'm wondering, as you got started, you know, how you made a decision about where what, where you'd want to play in the space?
2: Yeah, I think
0: we believed in the
2: power of kind of on-site farming, right? You know, we have a slightly different value proposition to that of the larger scale farms. And I think we're addressing supply chain. We're, we're giving you know, accessibility. We're also creating experience. And that, to us, the platform we're building is really kind of a category defining and shaping platform where our software and the underlying support would work with a grow pod. It would work with a shipping container. And we don't want to be building the next best widget. We want to be enabling plenty of other companies to build their own widgets. And I think there's an underlying belief with us that there is no one-size-fits-all solution, there will be pretty tailored solutions for specific applications, whether that's based on market sector or the crop variety. And that does, you know, there's still be there's lots of opportunities for exciting hardware products like the ones that we have today. But I think ultimately the all of these products will live and die in their ability to be remotely managed. And that's why we focus all of our attention there. So we yet to have a conversation with Some of the companies you mentioned about partnering, but I think over time, the value of our software will become pretty apparent to them.
0: Graham, I'm I'm wondering from the tech side, where you were looking for inspiration, if this is something that was new, uh, an area that was new to you, technology that was new to you, how do you know, like if you're doing something right, and what's the best way to go about tackling some of those challenges?
1: I think we could look for inspiration for individual components of the system elsewhere, Because we're such an integrated system from hardware to software to consumable shipments to, you know, customer service dashboards and stuff like that, it's it's hard to find a really good parallel for all of that. But for each of those kind of examples that I just mentioned, we could look to someone else. Like for the horticulture, we definitely have looked to the, the larger players in the space to kind of see how they do certain things. We've looked at other IoT companies that are around to see how they do, you know, like how they do certain functions in their tech stack that I would say is equally as novel as a lot of the stuff that's happening in the in the ag tech space in general. So it's, it's hard to find like a whole lot of examples, you know, where they actually reveal what they're doing. As far as like the service, we've looked at, you know, meal prep boxes, you know, subscription boxes, stuff like that. We kind of look at a lot of other different companies with a narrow scope to figure out how we can pull off one part of this experience. But kind of at the end of the day, it's, it's up to us to figure out how to integrate all of those to make that great customer experience. We're pretty careful to make sure that we are doing good customer research. Mm-hmm. That's something that we're really focusing on right now to make sure that we're not just sitting in a room coming up with ideas. We're trying to actually in, you know, give the customer a metaphorical seat at the table hmm. how we design this.
0: Alexander, as you're growing the team, it looks like you're at 80-plus employees. Like, is no, that quite. what's the latest count?
1: <laughs> that, that might be LinkedIn. There's, there's a glitch
2: in LinkedIn where anyone okay. from Babylon in um, okay. Middle East <laughs> shows up as well. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> so we're working on that. But um, we're at about 25 people now.
0: Okay. Yeah. So I'm curious, you know, it starts out with, you know, both of you and being an an entrepreneur myself, I'm just always wondering about the different levels of how you decide, like, who do you add to the team first? You know, do you focus on doubling down on growing the team to support Graham or or do you feel like marketing is going to be a challenge or, you know, product development? And and I'm wondering how you think about it and who you look to for inspiration to make those decisions.
2: Yeah, I think. So firstly, like to this day, I'd say the team is very heavily weighted towards engineering because we have a pretty sophisticated and, and complicated product to build. And we're only just in the early days of deploying it. So that's just how things are. And we're really kind of transitioning out of that now. So we see a lot of growth in the this kind of support and sales areas. We also have, you know, between me and Graham, you know, we have a great kind of decision-making relationship. I don't, I you know, can't, can't really put my finger on it, but we just seem to get stuff done and, and not disagree too much. And um, and then we have a great COO, Mark Osterhals. So shout out to him. He has run a large manufacturing company before this, and really kind of, I'd say, between the three of us, we have a great dynamic where he has a lot of experience building and kind of running larger companies. So. That seems to kind of allow us to make decisions really effectively. And um, we've built an amazing team, really. It's a very talented group of people and I think pretty well balanced as well. So I'm pretty excited about the future with everyone around us.
0: And was there a conscious decision to stay in Virginia or, you know, how, I'm wondering what the ecosystem is like there for to support like your growth?
2: You know, it's actually very funny. We have got asked that question a lot. They're like, why are you in... Well, we were in Charlottesville. We just moved to Richmond. And people are like, what are you doing there? And quite frankly, like, I, it was just kind of where we were. Like, I, you know, I, I'm not from America. I didn't really have a network. I had network through UVA. And we friends from Virginia, too. And we just, we got into an accelerator and we just kept building. I don't think... I think it's kind of testament to the fact you don't need to be in the valley, you don't need to be in New York. And so while we're certainly out there and we have invested there and, and all that kind of stuff, like you don't need to be in those places. And I think we have really benefited from being in a, a smaller startup ecosystem. You know, Charlottesville and Richmond both have very supportive networks, which I'd say probably much less competitive in many ways than that in, in other cities. And so we've we've really benefited from that.
0: And it would seem that if you make a presence known in the community, you'd get the support of the business community in you know in Charlottesville, in in Richmond, because you know, there's probably not companies in I don't know how many act tech companies are, are there are in Virginia, but I imagine you're probably one of the few.
2: One. Yeah. <laughs> one other one.
0: <laughs> I'm curious, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask like what the impact what has been from COVID and you know, talk about what happened last year anything that that had to shift for you guys and what's happened since then
2: well i guess broadly speaking i think controlled environment agriculture is like probably one of the biggest beneficiaries right just from a public perception point of view yeah for us there are certainly some challenges right we uh, were not able to install farms at a lot of locations because they were either closed temporarily or or not letting people in so that certainly made us kind of reevaluate some things and Ultimately, we've seen a lot more demand than we've ever had before. So I think that is, we're not constrained by demand, but we certainly were constrained by like the operating conditions and um, just the realities of COVID. And I I think this year, fortunately, businesses seem to understand what they're dealing with and and now much more willing to let us come in and install farms and kind of prepare for reopening.
0: How much thought goes into form factor? Because I noticed that like a lot of the units are customer facing and as opposed to some other solutions where they're inside the building and and people just see the the output that comes there but for you know with a lot of your units people are interacting with them
2: you know i think one of our underlying beliefs is that you're still farming right you're still growing stuff and as wishful as it may be like that you can never fully automate it can never be perfect and so i do think our units look really good and that's intentional but they are quite industrial like inside you know there's we're not trying to make a perfect appliance or a luxury appliance. I think we we kind of accept the realities of growing. And then so we have a lot of software and support features. And that's a huge part of our service that we offer is making our customers get the most out of these farms. And so, yeah, we try to blend kind of aesthetics with just straight functionality.
0: I'm wondering what interactions you've had with other folks in the ag tech world. I don't know if you were going to conferences before COVID. So I wonder if you, either of you could talk a little bit about any of the relationships you've built up with other players in the space and, and just the general network of people in, in the vertical farming ag tech space.
2: Yeah, I think you know, we, we definitely attended a lot of them. I'd say, as you know, most of them got canceled or virtually it's not quite the same. We, I would say only towards you know, last year were people starting to really kind of take what we were doing seriously. I know at the beginning the concept, even shipping container farming, you know, has a pretty bad rep in some circles. And I'd say Infarm, who's we we would say is our main, you know, the main company in this category alongside us, I think it's our competitor to some extent, they made this, made the public aware of this concept and the viability of it. So I think that's helped us a lot. And the ripple effect of that is that we've been able to build some great relationships with large indoor growers who I think see what we're doing as a potential, you know, exciting complement to what they're doing. And I think from a customer awareness, brand awareness point of view, our farms or, or farms like ours, like in farms, can add a lot of value to the large commercial growers. So that's been the kind of foundation of some of the relationships we formed recently.
0: I noticed uh, something that I don't see on a lot of the other sites is in addition to the wide variety of greens there's also edible flowers as well <laughs> and and I'm wondering if that was a conscious decision or if that's just the nature of the relationships you're building with restaurants or specific consumers
2: yeah so I, I'd say our end goals are slightly different to that of a large restaurant so, so really having exciting varieties that are not that commonly available and kind of curating them in a way that's accessible to consumers, especially some varieties that are not traditionally available in supermarkets really is, is a huge value add of what we do. So that, that's the driving factor and they grow well. You know, that always helps.
0: Graham, you said something earlier When you first got started, you were interested in making products that made people happier. And then when you were talking about the plants, you were talking about how you were creating an environment to make the plants happy. So I'm curious if that's where those lessons were taught or if that's something that was ingrained in you early age. I'm wondering what the genesis of of that thought process is.
1: That's a good question. I think I should ask myself that. (laughs) I don't know if I immediately have a really good answer, but definitely when I was younger, I, I just liked you know, consumer technology. And and you might notice that I literally use that as an example of what I am not that interested in anymore. But I, yeah. you know, I had dreams of working for Apple, like designing their next iPhone or, or something like that. I actually applied to Apple when I was 16 or something because I was already actually repairing their devices, huh. like, you know, more black market style than at the Genius Bar and got <laughs> denied. And I don't, I don't think that's why. But I don't know, I've always kind of, I've, I've grown up around a family that really cares about food. One in my family had kind of a, a bad experience with, you know, we used to eat fast food and stuff. It was when I was really, really young, but ate a lot of fast food. My Someone in my family had a lot of problems with that, like serious, you know, health issues and so my family as a whole kind of flipped to using food for nutrition to stay healthy so we started going to farmers markets and just being really conscious about what we eat so i mean food has always been a, a really important thing to me and honestly i don't know why i started thinking about products in that way i'll think about it and i'll, I'll get back to you
0: well it seems like a interesting mix cuz you you did have the you know food is important as you said and then you have a love for Technology, So I, I can't think of a perfect mix of putting those two interests to use in working with a company like Babylon now.
1: Yeah, I mean, in hindsight, I, I think, it's, you know, it's the perfect job for me. Like I, I love the, the startup culture, working on a small team of, of scrappy people to get stuff out quick and innovate rapidly. I love food and I, I love being able to engage other people with their food. You know, going back to what Alexander said, I think modular farming and the larger farms, I think it's not one size fits all. I think they'll all prosper. and I really hope they all prosper. I think one of the values that we can provide is actually engaging the end customer. When you see a clamshell of hydroponic great lettuce on the shelf of the grocery store, it's not you're not getting the whole picture when you're comparing that to the stuff that was grown in Salinas Valley and trucked a thousand miles. But when you see it growing five feet from your plate and you can scan something in an app and it gives you a lot of information about how that was grown and what that means for your health and the environment i think that's completely different and i think the benefit to that person is much beyond their experience with our farm i I think that we can kind of be part of helping people respect their food a little bit more
0: so you can be the uh, steve jobs and wozniak of vertical farming then
1: yeah we just
2: need to uh, (laughs) From don't get tarot, like, too ahead of ourselves but we'll take it
0: alexander I'm a similar type of question for you like where did this come from this i mean obviously you there was a, an idea towards that in terms of how you picked your major but why is this idea this concept important for you
2: i don't think it's important to me i think it's important for the world like i think there is a underlying need and pressure like that i hope everyone's aware of especially people who listen to this that we need to make some significant changes. And I'm a real believer in the opportunity for technology uh, to solve that and for people to create the tools. I I think that whole like teach a man to fish and you feed him for a lifetime quote has always like kind of resonated with me. And I think that's where we come in. That is what we're doing ultimately with everything we're building is around accessibility at its core. And I think if we do that, we're creating the tools for something that really could disrupt large swathes of the food supply chain. And I think for us, I like, find modular birth quite today is, is really a stepping stone towards what this industry means for the food supply chain. And I really think there is a global opportunity to grow the majority of highly perishable produce indoors. And wouldn't it be amazing to be one of the companies doing that? So that was kind of the, at the very beginning, I was like, wait, if all this is true, like the world needs this. That's Tail, the ultimate tailwind is in our favor. So as long as we don't screw it up too much, it should be a fun company to build. That was kind of like the simple insight at the beginning.
0: And then just to follow up there, Alexander, so as you think about what are some of the challenges that you're going to face going forward, uh, probably in the next three to five years, what's something you know, that you're focused on as a challenge or a problem to tackle?
2: We could have a couple more episodes on that probably. But, you know, I think ultimately deploying, su- deploying products like this successfully and, and distribution nationally and internationally is going to be a you know, huge undertaking. It's certainly certainly doable, but it's, it's really, that's, that's what we're focused on is it's kind of getting that critical momentum with our current products. And, the, you know, we have some promising signs, I think, also expanding our product catalog in the near term as well, I think is very exciting, but, but certainly without its, with its challenges.
0: Graham, what's uh, what's something that keeps you up at night? Something that keeps me up at night. <laughs>
1: I think maybe tying into what he was saying. I just said how much I love the startup culture, but to scale you need to, you know, professionalize a little bit. And that's actually one of the, the kind of transitions we're working on right now, especially because we have so many moving parts as we scale that makes SOP like standard operating procedures and rules more important which is one of the less fun things. No, I, would, I wouldn't say that keeps me up at night, like having to do
2: SOPs, but. Yes, I think, as in
1: there. Yes. I'm, I'm <laughs> normally kept up at night because I'm excited. <laughs> it's, not, it's not like a negative thing. I'm just like super yeah. pumped to go in the next day and like crank out some engineering or whatever.
2: Yeah, I think there's some underlying research we're doing. And I mentioned, you know, we're solving very different problems, which is great. For our products, but scaling that and combining with some of the National Science Foundation research we're doing, I think if some of those things line up, it gets really, really exciting, because it is like truly groundbreaking, and we've got some in, independent pieces of technology which have applications across the industry, but they're still in very early stages. So you know, I think it's just can we um, push through with our, our current product and, and implement these features, and once we start deploying them, it will become pretty clear whether they're working or not, but. And if they do work, things are going to get really exciting for us.
0: Do you see uh, partnerships, alliances of any sort in your future?
2: Oh, absolutely. I'd say we're, I like to think we promote collaboration at every step. I think both with the indoor growers and like large indoor growers and with small ones, you know, we have solutions from private labeling our current units to licensing software. We're really quite an open book. And I think the way we've designed the system is pretty flexible. So, we do actually see a lot of interest from the industry today around that. And uh, hopefully that will continue to grow.
0: Have you been approached by anyone in the community about efforts to use this as an opportunity to educate upcoming you know, people in even some of these poor neighborhoods, you know, where there's like food deserts and just, teaching people about this new wave of indoor agriculture. I think I, I've seen a common thread in a lot of these conversations that uh, there's there's a really good opportunity to just educate a, just a whole new generation of people about, you know, new careers in this space.
2: Yeah, I, th- I think you're spot on there. I guess to, to unpack that a little bit, there's like the education angle, and then there is the return on investment among food deserts and, and creating affordable produce, I think, there are avenues for us to do both of those things, but I, actually they're not our focus at the moment just because we have we have to focus on, on what we're doing. But I think as we grow, those are the kind of two next logical steps for us is to create probably more of like a curriculum around what we're doing so it can be used in schools and then also develop some lower cost systems that can supply much more affordable produce at a small scale for communities and organizations in food deserts. So, it's on our radar for sure. And we want to do it. It's just not right now.
0: Question for both of you, Alexander, first. like So when you think about the convergence of the, you know, the price dropping with all these technologies, but also the advancements in the space, can you think of one or two things that has you excited in the space itself?
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think the opportunity for subsidies in the space is humongous. And I wish people were talking about it more. 2020 Farm Bill created the Office for Urban Agriculture. I think there are some like very early, like quite small grants. But if indoor agriculture was subsidized anywhere like wind or solar energy, it would be phenomenal. That's what I want people to talk about. And I don't
0: think they are enough. Graham, what comes to mind?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the technology advancements that I'm particularly excited about is using cameras to automate the collection of what we kind of call target variables, So, you know, when you're controlling a system, you have input variables like your electrical conductivity, pH, temperature, humidity, stuff like that. And you can automate them to, or actuate on them to, you know, get those variables in line with a growth recipe, which I think is, you know, what most of the industry does. But I think one of the things that you're starting to hear about at the fringe, you know, some really forward looking companies is using cameras to automate collection of the target variables which are plant health, plant shape, plant growth rate, stuff like that that you actually should be you know manipulating variable the input variables to optimize the plant health ultimately which normally requires a expert you know, to go around and you know tweak those variables to grow better plants. but you'll see that some companies are actually starting to use cameras to automatically detect how healthy, you know, how well these plants are doing. Um, And then the kind of step after that is correlating that to all of your automation to continuously improve your growth recipe to get better and better plants. So I think we'll see more yields, healthier plants, more nutritious plants, tastier produce, all of which are huge benefits to the, the end consumer. That's kind of one of the things we're working on with our NSF research. And I know there are at least three to five other companies with similar goals. So I I hope, you know, I hope that technology ends up being as successful as it sounds.
0: How far away do you think that is? Is that we're talking months, years? I think
1: a bunch of people, including us, are kind of testing it now. Our application again is, is kind of different than at a large scale grower. They just have different requirements, different needs, different price points but there are companies starting out with it in larger scale ag. Um, From my understanding, it's more of beta testing. And I think a lot of people are kind of successfully calculating those metrics. And I think another challenge is actually using those to affect the growth recipe, or in some cases, give suggestions to the grower who's actuating on those variables. I think we will probably deploy something with that whole feedback loop in about 18 months. and we're, we, But we've been testing it kind of up to this point.
0: Another question for both of you. What's a, a tough question you've had to ask yourself recently?
1: I don't have too much of a
2: weighted pause. I know you're recording. But. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, the, good thing, the good thing is we edit <pause> out, out, out the pause. So.
2: I think they are a couple things, so of things. We're under NDA, so we can't talk about it.
0: Like in general, like something about typically it's something you know you're thinking differently, uh, you know, or either business challenge or personal challenge. I think you
2: know there there have been numerous points where we've switched like direction, you know, as you have to do. I think it's very healthy to do that. But like for instance, we we've ceased all interest in the consumer product space. That was a huge decision at the time, and I you know I think I wanted to do it still for a little bit, and I think we came to right conclusion and similarly we had a couple of you know i think focusing is really where a lot of this comes down to i think it's not doing stuff it's not like i, I would say that's maybe the most diplomatic answer but it's probably true it's right. like usually deciding not to do stuff is really where the if there is any kind of like disagreements I'm usually around yeah. that which i hope is pretty healthy because it shows we yeah. have loads of opportunities <laughs> it's just about choosing the right ones
0: yeah so just, uh, I think, one more thought as as we wrap up. What are, can you think of folks in the space whose work you admire or anyone that fall into the category of maybe mentors or people that you work with and that you're sort of keeping an eye on as well because uh, they're doing some interesting work?
2: Yeah, I think both of those for different reasons. Second Chance is Ajit George is, is phenomenal. And I, and I love, I think that's a very like, honest mission and a fantastic business application where you know, profit planet people pub or something something like that but they really do hit tick all the boxes as a true social enterprise which I think is close to what like our heart or when we started and, and doing it at scale with this kind of it's just very clever the way it's done I think it's really cool and Square Roots I think yeah they're pretty pioneering in a lot of ways and um, great team and then you know they've made the most of shipping container farms which I think was a, a challenge segment and, and they're showing that it can really work
0: very cool. Well, uh, I want to thank you both for taking the time to share the, the story of Babylon. Uh, it's been interesting to, to see the wide variety of companies that are in the space. And and that I think what's tying everyone together is this mission for doing better for the planet, as Alexander mentioned. So it's it's exciting to see what you've been working on. And and you, you don't see a lot of... Um, Founders able to partner together as both you have sometimes successfully. So I think it's probably a testament to your friendship and <laughs> your ability to work together. <laughs> so I applaud you on that. So um, where's the best place for folks to connect with you individually or and to learn more about Babylon? As I think
2: LinkedIn it's always always the way, and then check out our website BabylonMicrophones.com.
0: Thanks again for sharing your story. I appreciate you taking time. Thanks, Harry. Thank you for the time, Harry. Thanks to Alexander and Graham for sharing their inspiring story. As always, full show notes are available at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. It includes a summary, timestamps, links mentioned, and a couple of quotes for you to share on social. Special thanks to our episode sponsor, Series Greenhouse Solutions. Series creates sustainable growing environments by combining smart design, innovative technology, and dynamic partnerships. Learn more at seriesgs.com. That's c e r e s g s dot com podcast production and marketing provided by Fullcast. Sign up for a free podcast brainstorm at fullcast.co forward slash chat 15. Tune in next week for my conversation with Sam Norton of Heron Farms. This one's a really fascinating conversation. I absolutely learned something new and fascinating about the intricacies of indoor saltwater farming. I'll just leave it at that and have you tune in to find out more. And as a reminder, if you're enjoying this show, please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes. Until we meet again next week, here's to your health.
1: Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit
0: verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There, you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published.